Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to this familiar text, we pray that you would give us eyes to see it afresh, that we might behold here the love, the grace, the mercy of Jesus Christ, our Savior, crucified for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you'd please open now your Bibles to our sermon text. Matthew chapter 27, we'll be reading verses 32 through 56 in the Pew Bibles, page 834. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This Jesus, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma salakhtani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook And the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. 
among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. If you talk to even a little child who's been to Sunday school, perhaps been taught a little catechism, and you ask him, why did Jesus die on the cross? That child will tell you, he died to save me from my sins. And that is a beautiful answer. It is profoundly true. It gets to the very heart of the matter. It's very much like the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Here Paul states the same key truth that Christ died for our sins. But notice how he highlights that everything Jesus did was in accordance with the Scriptures. This morning in preparation for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we are looking here at Matthew's account of the crucifixion. And we see here how he crafts the narrative around this theme. That in going to the cross, everything Jesus did, everything that he suffered, was according to the scriptures, in order to fulfill the word of God. He had come down from heaven. He had taken on human flesh for this very purpose, to fulfill the word of the Lord. And now we see it all coming to a climax as Jesus marches toward the cross, where he will lay down his life for the sheep. We'll look at Matthew's account in three parts this morning. First, seeing how, although Christ is the king, he is rejected by men. He came to his own, but his own received him not. John 1.11. Second, we see that though he is the son of God, he is forsaken by his father. This is the deepest blow of all the darkest depths of the cross of Christ. And yet it also sits at the very heart of the good news. And then after Christ is rejected and forsaken, we'll also see third, that the Savior is victorious in his death. So let's consider first, this morning, the king rejected by men. His theme runs all throughout the chapter. And it begins even before we started reading at the very beginning of the chapter. As I said, this is all a fulfillment of previous scripture. So we see in Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised. And rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Christ was rejected by man, abandoned even by his own disciples, the very ones he had come to save. And this is all a picture of our own hearts, how desperately we need a Savior. So Matthew chapter 27, it begins with Jesus' trial before Pilate. The Jewish Sanhedrin, their high council, had already condemned him for blasphemy, for the sin of claiming equality with God, which, of course, he was guilty of because he is God, come in human flesh. The Roman governor Pilate discerned that they had turned him over out of envy. He found no guilt in Jesus. He sought to release him, but Pilate's strategy backfired. He proposed to release Jesus and put Barabbas, the murdering insurrectionist, to death. 
But the Jewish leaders rallied the people to have Barabbas released and Jesus condemned. But in this we see a picture of an exchange. Exactly what will soon occur on the cross. The righteous one is condemned so that the guilty goes free. So they shall crucify him. They reject their king. Pilate has Jesus brutally scourged, ripping the flesh off of his back before he is handed over to a full battalion of soldiers. Then we see another rejection as the soldiers mock him. Earlier they had mocked him in his prophetic office, blindfolding him, striking him, saying, prophesy, who hit you? And now they mock him in his kingly office, dressing him in royal purple robes, pressing a crown of thorns into his brow, giving him a rod of office. They mock him by bowing down, saluting him as king, even as they spit upon him and beat him with this rod. Even as these men seek to utterly humiliate him, Jesus is willing to bear it all out of love for his people. The Lord came to bear not only our guilt, but also our shame. He bears it all for our salvation. Take note of their rejection and mocking, because we'll later see some of these same soldiers at the foot of the cross. As they take him out of the city, he was too weak from the scourging, the beating, to carry his own cross. They come to the place called Golgotha. And there they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Verse 34. This is a fulfillment of scripture, Psalm 69, 21. They gave me gall for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This gall is most likely a sedative meant to dull his pain. But Jesus would have none of this. He had come to the cross to drink the cup that his father would give him. The cup of his father's wrath which we'll look at in a moment. He would not let any human draft dull the pain of that bitter cup. And we see he is lifted up. He is nailed to the cross. But this fact is stated in passing in just one Greek word in verse 35. The fact that he is crucified. The verb is not even the main verb of the sentence. And so the focus here is not on Jesus' physical pain and suffering on the cross. Although we certainly know that the Roman cross, it was a horrific torture device that has hardly been surpassed in human history for its cruelty. But that is not the point that is focused on in the biblical accounts. That's not the essence of Jesus' suffering on the cross. We'll see where the heart of his suffering came in part two this morning. Verse 35, we also see that he was stripped naked. His garments were divided by casting lots. This is another fulfillment of scripture of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. And we have verse 36, they sat down and kept watch over him there. A fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, seventeen. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. As a proper Passover sacrifice, even as much as Jesus was brutalized, not one of his bones was broken, as was required of the Passover lamb. And as we come to verses 37 and 38, we see a stark contrast. 
Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Here you see the difference in station between the king and these two lowly robbers. The innocent in the midst of the guilty, the exalted one, and beside him the lowly. It's only when you realize that Jesus, the king, goes on the cross to represent his people, that it is the proper role of the king to represent his people, that this all makes sense. In fact, these two robbers may have been part of Barabbas' insurrection. And now Jesus, the substitute, taking Barabbas' place, has taken center stage between them. Here, too, Jesus fulfills two prophecies from Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. In 53, verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Next, we come to the blaspheming of Jesus. In verses 39 through 44, we see three different groups of people hurl mocking and bitterly sarcastic insults at the Son of God, even as he is bleeding and dying there on the cross. The scene which depicts their utter unbelief, their utter scorn for the Savior. I don't know about you, but it just turns my stomach. It ought to utterly revolt you. At the same time, it's recorded for you, not just because it happened, but because there is a deep irony here in their words. The very words that they throw at Jesus, intending them to be mocking jests, are laced with ironic truths in the midst of a few falsehoods about our Lord. The first of the three sets of mockers are the common Jewish people, the passers-by, as the Roman custom was to conduct, conduct crucifixions in a high-traffic area for maximal exposure. Verse 39, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now the word translated deride here is actually the word could also be translated blaspheme. This is the very sin for which Jesus was condemned at his trial before the Jewish council. And yet here they are blaspheming him, wagging their heads as they fulfill Psalm 22, 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And they're taunting it is in fact true. He will destroy the temple. And then he will rise again as the temple of the Lord in three days. It's just not in the sense that they understand. In questioning his identity, saying, if you are the son of God, they are echoing the very words that the devil tempted Christ with in the wilderness. He said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Matthew 4.3 and 4.6. Jesus has already overcome the devil's temptation in the wilderness. He overcame another time of trial as he wrestled in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he is the Son of God. And he has already said to his Father, not my will 
but thy will be done. And that is why he will not come down from the cross. He does not need to prove his identity. He does not need to save himself. He needs to pass through death and out the other side of the resurrection. The second set of mockers are the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They're taught maybe a little more clever, theologically astute, and yet it is still vicious. They say he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. He said, I am the son of God. And these words, they even say straight out, he is the king of Israel. They affirm the truth. And then they are seemingly intentionally quoting Psalm 22.8, another fulfillment of scripture. Do they realize the deep ironic truth in what they are saying? He saved others. He cannot save himself. Yes, exactly. In order to save others, he cannot save himself. He must stay there on the cross. Furthermore, Leon Morris writes, they said they would have believed he was the son of God had he come down from the cross. We believe he was the son of God because he stayed up. And we get one final group, verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Luke tells us that later one of these robbers repented. He put his faith in Christ. And that's a glorious truth. But Matthew's point here is that the mocking is coming at Jesus from all sides. In fulfillment of Psalm 69, 20. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none for for comforters, but I found none. The man of sorrows was rejected by men. And in this we see our own sinful human hearts. Unless you are given a new heart by the Holy Spirit, you would have been right there with that crowd shouting, crucify him. Right there with the soldiers mocking and humiliating him. Right there with the bystanders blaspheming him. And yet, Jesus Christ nevertheless went to the cross for sinners like you and me. The first we see the king rejected by man. And second, we see the son forsaken by God. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land. Until the ninth hour. The darkness that covered the earth at this moment wasn't any ordinary darkness. It wasn't even a solar eclipse because we know that this was Passover. It celebrated during the full moon. And so a solar eclipse is not possible at this time. Therefore, this was a supernatural darkness in which God blotted out the sun from noon until three o'clock during the hottest and the brightest hours of the day. Why did he do this? In order to give a sign of his divine judgment. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment all throughout the Old Testament. Remember that as you come to the climax of the ten plagues that the Lord brought on Egypt just before the destroying angel brought death on the firstborn sons of Egypt On the night of Passover, just before that, the ninth plague was three days of darkness 
described as a darkness to be felt. Here, those three days of darkness are condensed to become three hours of darkness as Christ, God's own firstborn son, hangs on the cross to die as our spotless Passover lamb. Then there's another more specific prophecy concerning this darkness. The prophet Amos prophesied concerning the coming day of the Lord, the day of his judgment upon our sins. Here's how Amos describes that day. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Amos 5, 18-20. And he goes on. Amos 8, 9 and 10. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And when you think of the day of the Lord, we usually think of it being the day of Christ's return, the day of final judgment. But here we see that for Christ, who bears the sins of his people, judgment day comes early. Because here on the cross, as a supernatural darkness comes over the face of the earth, Christ suffers in his body and his soul the wrath of God that the sins of all his people deserve. And here as we understand it, we will see why this is so much more than just a physical suffering on the cross. And that explains his cry, his cry of dereliction, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is, of course, the first line of Psalm 22, which we read earlier. It's the only recorded prayer in Scripture in which Jesus does not pray to his God and address him as my Father. Why does he do so? It's because in this moment he is drinking the foaming cup of the wrath of God down to its dregs. This is that cup which he had dreaded as he was in the garden, praying in agony, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But how is this possible? What is going on here? Jesus, who is the perfectly righteous son of God. Isn't it true that his father is absolutely delighted with him? He had no sins of his own to be punished for. How could he receive the wrath of God? What is happening here is that God is placing upon him all the sins, all the guilt, all the corruption, and all the shame of all his people. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange of the cross. Your sin transferred to and placed upon Christ. His righteousness, therefore, can be transferred to your account. But it's not simply that Christ receives the sin, that it is placed upon him. He receives the sin so that he might pay the penalty for it, that he might receive the punishment, the wrath of God that our sin justly deserves. And you know what that punishment is, that sin deserves the curse of death and hell. So Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So as Jesus' body was nailed to the cross, the record of our sins, that record is nailed to the cross along with him. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, once Christ's work on the cross was complete, that record of your sins is done away with because Christ has received God's judgment in your place. He has satisfied God's justice and he marks your account paid in full. Another way this is explained is by the prophet Isaiah. Going back to the Old Testament, Isaiah puts it this way. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How we will never know, we will never understand the full depths of all that Jesus Christ was experiencing when he cried that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he was receiving the full blast of God's fiery wrath that we deserve for our sin, the equivalent equivalent of eternity in hell for us. He who until this point had known only intimate fellowship with the Father, who had only known the Father saying to him, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. On the cross, he became sin for us. And so for three hours, he experienced the hell of God's face of favor turned away from him and instead receiving that last of God's wrath, that which we deserved. And so it's no wonder he cried that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet why did he do this? He did it for you and for me, for all who had put their trust in him. And how could we say, but hallelujah, what a savior. 
After his cry of dereliction, the bystanders, they misinterpret it. They don't understand. They say he's calling for Elijah. It's not clear if they just mishear his words or if they're actually intentionally seeking to misinterpret it and mock him. But one man gives him one last drink of sour wine, a final fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. We see here the king, he's been rejected by man, the son forsaken by God. Now we come to our last part, the savior victorious in his death. So with this last drink, his parched mouth is wetted. Jesus is able to give one final cry of victory before he lays down his life. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus cried out, but I believe from comparing the accounts, that according to John 19.30, his words are a cry of triumph. It is finished. Jesus had completed the work he had come to do, and so now he lays down his life. John 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Even in the midst of such unbelievable suffering, Jesus is in control until the end. He's ultimately not a victim. He voluntarily laid down his life. He gave it up. No one takes it from him. And so he dies with victory over sin, and soon he will rise a victor over death as well. And we see the immense significance of Christ's death as there are immediately a number of cataclysmic signs that follow. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I mentioned earlier that Jesus had predicted the destruction of the temple. And here we see that when Christ died, God himself tears the inner curtain of the temple in two to open the way to the most holy place, the inner sanctum access to God himself. But it's even deeper than that, for the book of Hebrews explains the work of Jesus as our great high priest. How he presented himself as a sacrifice to cleanse us from our sins, to seal the new covenant with his blood. And so we read in Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so with Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, the temple is now obsolete. It is passing away, and a new way is opened to God through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go on to read in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so it is appropriate that in his death, the temple curtain is torn wide open. Because this temple is now obsolete, Jesus has opened a new way to God through himself. 
the new high priest. Next we see the response of the earth. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The earth itself responds to the power of Christ's sacrifice. And it trembles. This too is predicted in Amos chapter 8 along with the prediction of the darkness of that day. As Amos prophesies, shall not the land tremble on this account? And then we see verse 52. The tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Here we see a concrete picture of what Christ has accomplished in his death. His death brings new life. Now Matthew gives us just a little hint here of what happens, and we wish we had more details. The message is clear that the death of Jesus will lead to resurrection life. After the great signs, I want to conclude this morning with a response of faith. Verse 54. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. In the Gospel of Mark, it's just the centurion who responds. And Matthew points out there were several soldiers who responded in this way. Several who were moved with awe and responded with faith in Christ. They saw the manner in which Jesus died. They saw the earth itself respond with quaking. They were not able to see the temple curtain torn in two. They didn't see the dead raised. They would not enter the city until Jesus himself was raised on the third day. Now perhaps he and his soldiers had taken part in that brutal mocking of Jesus. The centurion likely wasn't the one to actually stretch Jesus out on the cross or hammer in the nails. But he had overseen this whole affair. They had witnessed it all. They had been keenly watching Jesus. They had heard the jeers, the taunts, the mocking. They knew who Jesus claimed to be. And now it finally strikes home. He is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. This is nearly the same profession of faith that Peter himself made in Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But at this moment, Peter had denied Christ three times. He is nowhere to be found. But here we have a centurion and his soldiers, the very men who had overseen Christ's execution. And they are the first ones after his death to confess faith in Jesus Christ. What a picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to die for the very ones who had rejected him, even for these Roman soldiers who put him to death. What Amazing grace. Surely we see here it is not by works, but only by the grace and mercy of God that we can be saved, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. What about you this morning? What is your response to the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you rejected 
Christ and his cross? Or have you turned to him who alone can forgive your sins because he has paid the price for them on the cross? He has laid down his life. He has poured out his blood. Three days later, he rose again to new and everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, I urge you this morning, turn from your sins and turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ. He alone is the fountain of eternal salvation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for demonstrating your love for us, that while we were your enemies, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to give his life for us. Thank you for his sacrifice, for his suffering. And the more deeply we understand what he went through in our place, the greater our gratitude, the richer our praises, and the more we want to pour out our lives as a living sacrifice in response to your mercy. And so we give you all the praise and the glory through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.